Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Acadia Broadcasting Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. Something a little different with this podcast, David. Uh, we've gone outside the region to a national political uh, figure for a little history lesson, I guess. And uh, we had a chance to talk to Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the UN. That's probably a bit of a thankless job. But uh, we had a really interesting, wide-ranging conversation with him about his long and distinguished career. That's right. We talked about his career going all the way back to his early years in politics and then as Premier of Ontario and and forward to his, his um, time with the Liberals. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that conversation. He's a very cerebral thinker. He's got great ideas for our listeners on the state of things today and how to make things better. And, and I thought a really great uh, uh, set of ideas for Atlantic Canada around focusing on trade and some of these things. He seemed, and even his knowledge of member two, he seems to have right. a good knowledge of this region. And, and I thought that came through in this conversation. Well, a very intelligent individual. Uh, you know, you could tell by following his career that, uh, you know, he was thoughtful and uh, cerebral, as you mentioned. Um, and, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, being Premier of uh, Ontario as the first NDP Premier. And, uh, you know, it came in at a very difficult time. And uh, <laughs> it's funny, he even said that he never expected to get reelected. So he wasn't surprised when he didn't, that's, which I thought, that's interesting. But uh, he, you know, he tried to do what was right uh, during his term. You know, we need more politicians to try to do what was right and not worry about getting reelected. So, you know, good on him for that. Yeah. And I think history will look kindly on Bob Ray. I think, you know, when you look at the, the, the totality of his career, I think he will go down as one of our more successful and, um, and influential politicians. Yeah, and his switch to become a, uh, a diplomat was an interesting one as well. It, you know, he acknowledged it takes uh, different skills than being a politician. Uh, I think he's really adept at it based on, you know, what I've observed. Uh, and the thing that's interesting as well, he's at this stage of life and the stage of career where he's actually not afraid to be outspoken and to voice opinions, uh, which is not really typical for diplomats. But uh, if you follow him on social media, he, he's not afraid to tell the truth uh, when the truth is needed. Uh, we need a little bit more of that in our society at the political level, for sure. And even from diplomats, like, you know, it's all very cutesy, but in the end, People need to be called out when they're not doing the right thing. And uh, so I, you know, I give him credit for doing that as well. Uh, so, you know, a very interesting long career and he has no intentions of retiring. I like that personally. You know, he's, he's being repurposed many times like me. And, uh, you know, he still has plans to, uh, to keep going and doing uh, interesting things and, and making a contribution uh, to society. So, with that introduction, here's our very interesting conversation with Bob Ray. We are pleased to be joined on the Insights Podcast by Bob Ray, the current Canadian ambassador to the UN. Welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. 
Ambassador, you've had a very interesting career before becoming a diplomat. You had a long and distinguished political career, serving as the Premier of Ontario, uh, interim leader of the Liberal Party of Canada. You were, you've practiced law. You've been uh, 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 a wide variety of other activities. And now you're the permanent resident for Canada at the United Nations. Um, can you, just looking back, can you tell our listeners maybe one or two of your fondest moments in your career so far? Well, I don't spend too much time looking back uh, sort of nostalgically. Uh, I guess there's a couple of things. I, I Just the first thing is that I've been incredibly lucky, uh, just so lucky to have had the opportunities that I've had to serve. Um, working, as, uh, working as an MP, uh, the Ed Broadbent just passed away. So, of course, I've been thinking a lot about, about him and about those days. But at the time of the constitutional debates uh, and the patriation of the Constitution was a pretty exciting time, uh, and uh, I really cherished those uh, those moments. Uh, I think, um, as premier, um, first of all, the surprise of winning, which was, <laughs> I think everybody knows, not expected at the beginning of the campaign. This is what would happen, uh, but it did happen, and then being thrust into a you know, times of great crisis and, and difficulty. Uh, picking myself up after I was defeated and starting on some new tracks that uh, have continued to this day. So that's that's been, I think, a good, a good life experience. And uh, I can honestly say that the last four years have been as much fun and as interesting and as challenging at the personal level uh, as anything that I've done. And it's not Every seventy-five-year-old who who can say that that uh, I I don't feel my career is over, uh, and I'm still feeling very good about being active. So I'm I've got a lot of uh, a lot of blessings. You haven't haven't mentioned uh, my my personal life, my wife and my my kids and my grandchildren. Uh, I don't regard them as part of my career, but they're <laughs> they're they're an even more important part of my life. So it's uh, it's great. Absolutely, and we're going to we're going to ask you about your current role, but let's let's go back a little bit into history. I know when I started my career uh, back in the early '90s, you were at that time the, the premier uh, of Ontario, the first NDP premier in the history of the province. Can you tell our listeners what was it about the NDP that initially drew you to that party? Well, it, I mean, I the funny thing is, people say to me, "You switch parties." I've actually switched parties twice. I I started out as a liberal. As a, as a young man, a very young student. I was a student at the convention that elected Pierre Trudeau. I campaigned hard for Mr. Trudeau in 1968 on behalf of, uh, of an MP named Charles Katcher, who, was a, who became a very good friend of mine. Um, I went away to university to, uh, to Oxford to do some graduate work. I worked as a community worker, uh, came back to law school, uh, and did a lot of work for legal aid and injured workers and uh, studied labor law and all that stuff, and and felt that the NDP was the party that I was that I was closest to, um, and so I I joined the NDP in seventy four seventy five. I went to the NDP convention that elected Ed. Uh, did a lot of work for him on uh, policy stuff, um, and then um, I guess it's the work I did through the unions that that also helped to consolidate. Uh, my relationship with the NDP. I worked for the Steelworkers Union during the summers, uh, and uh, and then articled for a labor law firm. So 
that are going into the NDP politically was not a not a dramatic shift for me. Um, I, I also came at it through uh, at a time when Stephen Lewis was the leader of the party uh, in Ontario, and uh, I was a big admirer of his, and still am. Uh, and so it, it seemed like a like a good fit at the time. And uh, I, I I won a nomination to run federally, and ran ran in 1978 and was elected in a by election. Um, I hadn't even gotten called to the bar uh, when I was uh, when I was elected. Uh, but yeah, I, I have no regrets about it. And uh, again, it, it's like um, many things in life. In certain circumstances, you go in a certain direction. The one difference that I realized, uh, I think, more clearly than perhaps many other. NDPers do and did was that I didn't feel that I was born into the party. I didn't feel like I was joining a church. Uh, although I think there are a number of people in the NDP who I think feel that way, that this is their ideological home. And, uh, I, I was never, I was never one of those guys. So I think that partly accounts also has to why eventually I decided to run for another party. It wasn't a dramatic split. But it was just a, a shift of what I thought was was going to be the most effective and most the big way in which I could make the biggest contribution at that particular point. Well, Bob, it's probably a little hard to dif differentiate between the NDP today and the Liberals because they are both <laughs> quite far to the left. So maybe that's part of the issue, isn't it? Uh, you were Premier of uh, Ontario uh, during a very challenging period. And, uh, you know, you only had one term as premier. Uh, I know you don't like to go back in history, but it'd be interesting to get your perspective on what you thought, you know, went wrong for your government. I don't think it's about what went wrong. I think the fact that we were elected was was um, pretty outstanding. I mean, pretty unusual. Not what mm. we expected. When I went into provincial politics and became leader of the, became leader of the party in 1982, uh, I never expected to be premier. I didn't go into uh, becoming the leader of the third party because I, I, you know, I thought I should be premier. Uh, I, I did it because I thought we needed to have a strong party that would that would lead, that would go forward, that would that would uh, make a difference in the social, political, and economic life of the uh, of the province. I was very committed to uh, trying to change the government after it had been in for so long. The Conservatives. So when we were elected, we faced an economic crisis, we faced a constitutional crisis, and we had the challenge of doing all these things with a very new caucus, with many people who had not been uh, in government. I think they, you know, when I look back, say what, you know, what, my Arlene always said, you're never going to get elected again, so you might as well enjoy this term. <laughs> but, uh, so I, I didn't go in expecting to be reelected. I did, though, um, did my best to try to bring the party firmly into the middle of Ontario politics at a time when uh, we needed to do that as a party to to make more people feel safe uh, about voting for the NDP the second time around. Uh, but unfortunately, the 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 economics of the situation and the and the fiscal situation of the province. Um, kind of forced my hand. I felt that we had to do something more dramatic in terms of public sector, how, how the public sector was organized and uh, and uh, this, uh, the proposals that we made to the unions were not accepted by them uh, to the public sector unions. And that, that in a sense, uh, caused a rift, a split. Uh, and that 
that was that made life difficult. I think I made election re-election very difficult. I think that uh, you say what went wrong. I think that probably went wrong. I think that was probably the thing that uh, made re-election implausible. Um, but I also think that um, we did some really good things as a government. I mean, we invested more in housing than anybody else, which unfortunately was not maintained by other governments. We invested in public transit, which was not maintained by other governments. Um, we refused to attack people on on welfare. We would reform welfare programs, but we, we wouldn't do the kinds of cuts which subsequent governments did. So when we look at what happened after we were defeated, uh, the subways were canceled and filled in with concrete. Uh, the <laughs> the uh, housing programs were cut, a, a billion dollars taken out of the budget of the province uh, and, and has never, never been replaced effectively, which is why we have such a large housing problem in Ontario today. Uh, and there were immediate cuts in, in uh, social programs. So that I think proved to be a real a real problem, and we're still suffering from that uh, from that consequences of that. And I, I I I think we did some great things as a as a government. I suspect most people who were premiers feel they did a good job, uh, but I I uh, I do think we made some mistakes. I, I think that how to manage this the situation that we faced more more effectively I think is a fair criticism. We we didn't we didn't. Uh, we didn't do it soon enough, so when we finally had to do it, it was probably more than anybody could swallow. You taught law at the University of uh, Toronto, uh, and, and you practice law specializing in Indigenous law and constitutional issues. You were one of the first premiers to approach indig Indigenous organizations on a government-to-government -government relationship. I wonder what progress you have seen in the relationships with the indigenous uh, communities over the past couple of decades. Well, I think in the last forty years, uh, which is really the span of my of my time in politics, actually 40, 45, and uh, forty five years since I was elected, um, I think that's one of the big transitions, one of the big changes. There are many others, but I think that's one of the, one of the big social changes that we've seen, um, <laughs> and and you know, when 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 the and that I think is something that many people were part of. I'm proud I was able to do what I could do. We you know we made a difference in changing the federal constitution. NDP was critical in changing the federal constitution. That in itself led to um, major court decisions that I think have helped to make a big change. I just had a feeling as a as an individual uh, going back to uh, my early days uh, after university that we really had not come to grips with the fact that um, our indigenous history, our indigenous identity as a country uh, was repressed and oppressed for, for far too long, and that, we, that people have been treated terribly, uh, and that we needed to uh, embark on this process of, of reconciliation. So I, I was delighted we were able to do it as a province or start doing it as a province, and I've been I'm really quite quite amazed at how far we've we've come. We still have a long way to come. Uh, but if you said to me, "Are we better off now than we were 40 years ago?" Absolutely. And uh, change has been possible uh, because of the the incredible persistence of the indigenous people themselves and the leaderships that they've elected 
uh, and also because there have been a number of Canadians who've been prepared to lead uh, and uh, and make a make a big difference, and and uh, I think that's contributed to it. We recently had uh, Chief uh, Terry Paul on of the member two uh, First Nations. You probably have heard of them. Well, I know them. Very successful, and you know, you talk about uh, the importance of leadership. Um, you know, I think Chief uh, Terry is a good example of what's possible with good leadership. Uh, they've become all essentially, you know, uh, self-sustaining as a community through their economic development uh, success. It's been a real model for other uh, other communities. They also have the highest rate of uh, completion of high school, the indigenous population in Nova Scotia. Uh, they they've done a lot of things right, and I think. It's almost it's it, it's not possible to replicate everything that they've done because the fact about the of the indigenous community in Nova Scotia is that it's it's part of the life of the province. You you there you know the province is much more closely connected with each other, and so many of the reserves are right next to major cities, communities like like Sydney, for example, in, in Cape Breton, where Member Two is, um, and and it's made a huge difference in terms of just the. The, the balance towards greater integration. Yes, uh, they've there are problems. Yes, there's been prejudice. Yes, there's been discrimination. But we've also had a couple of outstanding governments in Nova Scotia which have said, no, we're going to keep pushing on this path and and make a difference. And it's made a huge difference in the in the life of the uh, life of the province. I think that's an excellent observation. Um, we want to talk about your time as uh, after being elected in. 2008 as as a liberal uh, MP and then becoming interim leader of the party. Can you tell us a little bit about that time frame and some of the highlights? Well, it was. Uh, I mean, uh, to be honest, it, it's uh, it, it was a mix with lows and highs. I mean, I came reasonably close to being elected leader in 2006. When I look back on it now, I said that was that was always a long shot. Uh, coming in from a, from I hadn't been a member of the NDP for a, for a period of time, but when I uh, came in as a liberal uh, and ran for leader, that was that was uh, asking a lot. I think of some 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 liberal party members; they were reluctant to do that. Um, then I had to decide that I was going to run for parliament. After all, and I did. I felt that I couldn't just stand for leader and then say goodbye. So coming back into parliament was um, uh, actually, in the end, it was fun. It was, I enjoyed coming back in and uh, felt. Uh, that I made a real contribution uh, in that that five year period, um, and becoming interim leader was really a choice that I say I made, Arlene and I made to say, okay, you're not going to be leader, uh, but maybe in this two year period, there's some things I can do uh, based on my experience, the mistakes that I made before, uh, the things, the ways of getting it better, of doing it better uh, the second time around. And I, I think I did make a contribution uh, in helping to rejuvenate, revive the party, um, you know, bring people's spirits up, get us refocused, get us better financed, and get us in a stronger position. And then, of course, Justin Trudeau became the leader in 2013. Um, and I left at that point to anticipate your next question, which is, hmm. why didn't you stay? Uh, for a very simple reason. I felt I'd done what I set out to do. Uh, I set out to help to rebuild the party. Uh, and uh, at that point, I had was approached to 
by a group of people who said, we'd like you to work on a negotiation involving indigenous people in the far north of the province. And I said, good, that's a new, completely different uh, and exciting challenge, and I'm happy to take it on. And that led to another five or six year engagement, which was fascinating and incredibly rewarding. And I, I learned a huge amount in, in taking on that job. So, you know, you've had a really amazing career. <laughs> you've done a lot in a, in, over that career span. Uh, now you're a full-time diplomat. That's got to take a different set of skills to some extent, does it? Yeah. Yes. Tell, tell me the difference between being a diplomat and being a politician. Well, I think the first one is just, I mean, first of all, I came into this job and it was, Mr. Trudeau offered it to me. And I said, you realize that my father had the same job for your father. And he said, yeah, I, I remember that. He said, I, you know, I know that. But so I said, there is an, there is an irony to, to this situation. And I said, yeah, yeah, there is. Um, well, the reality is when you're, when you're working for the government, you work for the government. You are part of a team, uh, a team here in New York, which consists of about 35 or 40 people. Um, and then a, a, a much larger team at uh, Global Affairs Canada, and of course for for the Prime Minister and his and his team in the Prime Minister's office. So uh, it's it's complicated. You have to navigate a lot of a lot of parts of the system. The UN itself is a is a big is a big system. Uh, so there's been a huge amount of learning for me to do, which I continue to do and continue to participate in. Um, and it's working on a different stage. I mean, here we are in New York. There's 193 countries that are represented here. It's um, it's quite overwhelming when you go into that big GA hall the first time and you see uh, all the people and all of the, the backgrounds and all of the diversity that's that's in front of you all the time. And you just realize the world is a big, big place. And there are lots of, lots of people in it and lots of people from all over. And they have profoundly different points of view and profoundly different uh, perspectives on the world. So it's it's a challenging place to work, and it's a challenging place to find agreement and to uh, to make progress. But it, it's it's been a it's worth it. I've I've been here now for three and a half years, and and uh, I'm I'm very very glad I I came. It's been a it's been a huge opportunity for me to uh, to learn. In 2017, you were appointed Canada's Special Envoy to Myanmar. Uh, can you tell us what the focus of your work was as Special Envoy in that case? Well, in my work that I'd done for the uh, for an organization called the Forum of Federations, I'd I'd uh, I'd, I'd I'd been involved peripherally with uh, looking at the situation in Myanmar. I'd been approached by a few people to to look and see because the the country is 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 very divided and is very diverse in its makeup. There are a number of ethnic groups, ethnic nations, as they call themselves, tribal nations that go back in time several thousand years. Um, and uh, the, the, the Muslim community, which is, um, again, in the northwest of the country, known as the Rohingya. Uh, and so I, I got involved in it a, a, a bit. And it was in the course of a conversation with the prime minister uh, on a plane when we were coming back from a funeral together that 
uh, it was soon after the Rohingya had been expelled from uh, from Rakhine State and were in a refugee camp. And he said, would you like to go? And I said, yeah. I, I said, yes, I would. I'd be interested in going. I, I would be glad to take on a role if, if you have one. He said, yeah, I, I have something in mind and we'll be in touch with you. So I got a call about a week later saying, would I accept this role as being the special envoy, which was really, again, a very fixed task. I had to give a report to him very quickly and then uh, go on from there to uh, to do a longer report and, and give advice to the government overall as to, uh, you know, what was going on out there. And um, I think that's what led to his decision to ask me to do the UN job. So before you took the job at the UN, you he did appoint you a special envoy on humanitarian refugee issues resulting in a report entitled A Global Pandemic Requires a Global Response. Can you tell us about that report and how did it influence Canada's response to the pandemic? Well, no, I think the la- the answer to the latter question is not quite enough. <laughs> I tried to convince the government that um, th- these these situations require a much greater commitment to uh, the international situation. And I think that one of the realities that I was hit with uh, is that most governments, um, when you are faced with a critical situation like the pandemic, their first instinct, and it's a democratic instinct, is how do I respond to the needs of my people? That's what I was elected to do. Uh, And so um, Canada's sense of priorities were matched by everybody else's sense of priorities. Uh, And so when you look at at the overall global situation, we didn't respond globally. We responded nationally to the pandemic. And the price of that is that countries that have no means um, either ended up thanking China or Russia for the for the vaccines that they received, which were much inferior to the ones that Canada had eventually had access to, um, or um, didn't get it at all. Uh, in which case, they were just they were just mad. Uh, so uh, I think increasingly we're seeing uh, problems that are truly global in scope, like a virus, like a like a pandemic, like climate change, for example, where just talking about national responses is not is not enough. It doesn't doesn't begin to deal with the problem. Um, and and I think this is something that uh, our children and grandchildren will be living in for, living with for some time to come. I think the nature of the world that they are inheriting is one that is is more bundled up together, more tied together than ever before, but where it's not just national answers that are going to solve the problem. Um, And isolationism is just not an option. So we're going to come back and get your thoughts on that a little bit later, but we we wanted to now turn to your time as ambassador uh, to the UN. Uh, Can you tell our listeners what your key responsibilities are as, as ambassador? Well, I think the job starts with my responsibilities are to lead a delegation of uh, skilled diplomats who are here. Uh, and uh, we we have a calendar of events that run relentlessly through the year. Like school, we start in September uh, with the, uh, the uh, General Assembly uh, gathering uh, in New York. Uh, and the 
fall is a very intense time uh, for all of the committees of the UN, the, the major committees of the United Nations General Assembly, um, are in full swing. And it starts off with what's called high-level week, which is uh, actually two weeks now, uh, where heads of state from all over the world descend on New York. I mean, if, if, if you've never been here or seen it on television, it's actually quite unbelievable. Uh, our own prime minister comes and ministers come and others, presidents and kings and queens, everybody arrives. And, and uh, there's usually a couple of special meetings with the secretary general, and then we go on from there. But during during that 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 period, which is just concluded in December, uh, it's very intense. Um, starting in January, it's it's intense because the the nature of conflict in the world. And in addition to the General Assembly, there there are two other big parts of the UN system. The first one is the Security Council, which everybody has heard of. The second one is what's called the Economic and Social Council, which not as many people have heard of, uh, and which deals with all of the issues around development and and uh, uh, pandemics and healthcare and the, the social and economic life of of the world. And uh, the UN itself, the members of the UN, are eager to play a much more uh, advanced role in in those issues. A lot of the financial issues are handled by the World Bank and by the International Monetary Fund in Washington and other agencies around the world, but countries increasingly are coming to the UN saying, well, that's fine, but we, we want to play a role in that as, as well. We want, we want our voices to be heard on this, on this economic and social stage. The Security Council meets throughout the year, so does the Economic and Social Council. But under the Economic and Social Council, for example, we have a two-week uh, conference de dedicated exclusively to the issues around status of women. Uh, we also have a two-week conference focuses on Indigenous people. We have other conferences that focus on uh, people of African descent. We have conferences on climate change that are not COP, but are, in a sense, mini-conferences that talk about, well, how are we doing? What's the report card on, on these issues? So this all sort of goes on. Um, and so I... My job is to coordinate everybody who's working with on these issues. Sometimes we have visiting delegations coming in from Ottawa or elsewhere, um, and that's what we do. And then on the crises that everybody is familiar with, Ukraine, Gaza, uh, and the 50-plus other conflicts that are happening in the world, that's where the Security Council plays is supposed to play a key role. But the Security Council's problem, as everyone knows, is that the Five of the countries on the Security Council have a veto. So the veto makes it very difficult for the Security Council to work effectively, which puts more burden back on these other agencies which have a critical responsibility to respond. I wanted to ask you a, a question that uh, we didn't uh, plan on, but I think that it, it's, it's worth asking. Um, Canada's reputation seems to have suffered in the last couple of years from a number of aspects. I don't know if you see that the UN, but you know, there's a lot of criticism of uh, Canada's uh, you know, contribution to NATO or it, its inability to make play a more significant role in, in that regard. Do you, do you think that Canada's voice is weaker than it has been now? And if so, do you think that is, that, that is fixable? At the U at the UN, our voice is not weaker. In fact, we're one of the top 10 
contributors to the United Nations uh, overall. And um, I don't, I think Canada continues to play a, an important role at the UN. I mean, I, I certainly, nobody says to me, oh, you're, you know, you guys are not doing what you need to do. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that NATO is a separate, <laughs> a separate issue. Um, NATO is based in Brussels and it's a military, essentially military and defense organization that's, that was created in 1949, uh, to meet the Soviet threat. Um, and yeah, there, there will always be demands for greater, uh, spending on defense or, or whatever it may be. I do think that one of the things that's happened both in NATO and, in, well, certainly in the UN, very much so, when, you know, there are, there are 193 countries in the UN. When we joined, we were 53. When Canada played a critical role in the formation of the UN and the formation of NATO, we were one of the few countries that was really on its feet. Um, so many countries were badly defeated, suffering tremendously from the damage of the war, the chaos and the, the hardship that the war had created. Uh, and Canada played, played a role that was very, very strong. There were also some contributions of unique individuals. I mean, Mr. Pearson was an exceptional leader in this, in this milieu, in this, in this place. He, he was revered for his abilities, his, his good sense of humor, his, 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 just the way he played, he was able to work here, uh, has left a lasting, uh, impact. Uh, and, and I think it, 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 uh, you say, well, you, you know, you're not doing that anymore. You say, well, there aren't too many of those guys who come around uh, that often, uh, who are able to have that kind of impact. Um, I think we have to accept the fact as Canadians that we, we must play a, a continuing role in, in the life of these organizations. As I mentioned before, I think the problems of today and of the future will increasingly be challenges of interdependence. And one of the things about interdependence is what are you contributing? Are you contributing enough? Are you doing enough? And I think that's a very legitimate question that we should always be asking ourselves. I don't think we can be satisfied with looking back and saying, well, this is what we did before. I think you have to be constantly looking at the situation and saying, what more can we do? Uh, and I think that's something that Canadians need to need to think about. Hmm. The, the UN is often criticized as being too bureaucratic and ineffective. And I think it's safe to say that, you know, members like Canada and the U.S., they don't really see the programming aspect of uh, what the U.N. does, so they, they're not very knowledgeable about the effective things that it does. But how would you counter the criticism that seems to be always there about the U.N.? Well, the U.N. is bureaucratic. I mean, it, 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 is a, it is a large bureaucracy. It's not that large. I mean, it's the budget of the Secretariat is less than the budget of the City of Toronto, so... It's, it's not that, not that big and it can't borrow money and it can't impose taxes. Uh, so it's, it's not, it's, 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 it's not as strong as many people think it is. I think the ineffectiveness of the UN is partly related to the charter, the structure, the, the vetoes that I've referred to. I think there's a lot of ways in which the, uh, the UN is saddled with a constitution, which is, which is highly imperfect. 
And uh, yet, the reality is, if we didn't have that, if we didn't give those countries the veto that we gave it to them at the beginning, they probably wouldn't be members. Um, I don't think the United States, they would, have, they would not have joined the same way they didn't join the League of Nations in 1919. They would have just said, you know, it's not for us. Uh, but that is something that uh, the the veto is a problem. So other than the fixing the veto, which is, I guess, it seems like it's impossible, what in your opinion needs to be done that would make UN more effective without fixing the veto? Well, I think it's, I mean, part of when we talk about the UN, we talk about an organization, but what mm -hmm. we got to remember is who decides what the UN does, the members of the UN. So it's really up to us as members of the UN, what do we want to do? How much are we prepared to spend? How much are we prepared to invest in in the global commons and what the global community requires? Or are we are we not prepared to do that? Um, I don't think the question of how much money do you want to give the UN is going to be a major campaign debate issue. <laughs> I don't think Canadians are on the edge of their seat saying, boy, I wonder how this one turns out. But the reality, the reality is, though, uh, that that issue is actually very, very important because the problems are going are and are going to continue to be increasingly global. Global warming is global and the solutions to global warming are global. The migration and refugee crisis that we live in now, where there's more people searching for where to go in the world than have been searching this way for generations, uh, is not going to be solved by individual nation states picking and choosing as to what they want to do. It's going to require more global solutions. That's not something the Secretary General can fix on his own. Uh, there are things he can do on his own. I mean, there are things he can fix. Uh, and like every leader, it's not always easy, but there are things that could be done within the UN to make it to make it happen, make it more flexible, more nimble, able to respond better, always looking for better leadership, better, more talent, more people who are really capable of putting their shoulders to the wheel. These these things, are, I think, I always have to be you know looked at. But I think the, the, the question of its resources, the UN doesn't have resources. It can't borrow money. So it only gets the resources it has from nation states. And that's a, that's a hard fact. Uh, many people question why a country like Russia remains a member of the Security Council during a time of war with Ukraine. You know, should there be some sort of mechanism to remove countries from the Security Council under the, the circumstances like the one in Ukraine? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but the likelihood of that happening are not great because every change you make to the Security Council uh, that's fundamental requires a change in the Charter. And... The countries that have a veto over motions that pass at the at the UN also have a veto, veto on changes to the charter. So it's sort of a circular problem. Um, right. But but the problem is that um, you know the the fact is simply quite simply put uh, the, the, the there is an argument and I and I I am one of those people who believe this is that there's there are provisions in the charter which make it clear that a nation state needs to consider 
its position before voting in terms of a potential conflict. And my view is Russia should not have voted uh, in on the resolution in which it was directly criticized for for being an aggressor. It's they were chair of the meeting. It was inappropriate for them to cast a vote at that meeting. Uh, and I think under rules, they, they could have been forced not to do it, would have brought to the General Assembly. We could have voted on it. It would have been it would have been very difficult for the Russians. They would have been very unhappy. But the reality is they should not have had the vetoes that they've had. You can't veto something that directly affects something you're doing. I mean, that's not right. Ambassador, can I just quickly come back to this question of Canada's place in the world that, that Don raised earlier with you? You're probably the best person around to answer the question. And I think it seems to me Canada's kind of squeezed. You've got a lot of emerging countries that, you know, they want a greater voice and you've got the bigger countries in Europe. I mean, we were known for peacekeeping. I mean, the big sort of thought leadership, pugwash conference, things like that. What is there still a role for a country like Canada to, to sort of influence things or, or are we just going to be continued to be marginalized because of just the nature of what's happening in the world? Uh, I know. I, I certainly believe there's a role, but I think how we play that role is critical. And I, I keep saying to people, um, it's how we do things with others. It's how creative we are to work with other uh, like-minded, like-situated countries. How how well can we work with middle powers, like many of the countries in Europe, um, many countries in Africa and Asia, uh, that are you know, coming on the stage that have rapidly industrializing economies and how can we play a more effective role with them? Uh, and I think that's, a, that's entirely possible, but it does require effort. It requires significant willingness to, to, to move beyond your area, your zone of comfort and to move out and say, okay, how can I effectively engage in a way that's going to make a difference. I mean, we look back at the Pearson example, and of course the pinnacle of Mr. Pearson's career at the UN was, was uh, his mediation in, uh, in Suez. And uh, he, he was able to do that, not only because he, he was playing a critical role between France, the UK, Israel, and the US, but also because he was working with governments like Egypt and, and many other Middle Eastern, India, many other countries in the world that in the UN of those days were critically important. And he was well respected in the way in which he did it. Um, Canada on its own can only do so much. I mean, the, the first point is, if we don't do more ourselves, then we, we are going to be increasingly vulnerable to criticism to say, you're not pulling your weight. And that's something we have to be really aware of as a as a country uh and the second thing is it's about how do we work with others to help to help to address and make change happen we're part of a lot of smaller groups here at the in new york trying to work on u.n reform trying to work with the agencies of the u.n about how they can be more effective uh chairing important meetings uh like the ones we do on haiti the ones we do on what's happening to children in armed conflict, um, continuing to play a role in Myanmar and Afghanistan, difficult conflict areas. Uh, so there's lots of room for us. It's no, there's no shortage of things for us to do. And 
I don't feel that we're squeezed at all. We're, I mean, nobody's squeezing us. We've just got to do what we're good at. And if we do that, we can have an impact. And we do have an impact. And sorry, I keep, uh, I don't want to beat this to death, Ambassador, but do you think there's pressure now within Canada to kind of withdraw a bit from the world? Do you, are you seeing kind of a, I'm going to ask you about the U.S. later, but do you do you see Canadians wishing for you to kind of, or for us to kind of disconnect a bit from the world right now? No, I don't. I, I don't see that. I mean, there is this, this petition that was organized by, uh, or at least it's, been presented by an MP. Uh, I don't think that petition represents public opinion. I, I don't think if it was put, I haven't seen it in a poll or anything, but if you ask Canadians, you, do you want to withdraw from the United Nations? I think 90, over 90% would say, no, they don't want to withdraw from the United Nations. Uh, it's a, it's, it's not a, not something that's going to happen. Um, no, I don't see that. I do see it's more than not just, it's not like a big move in withdrawing. The risk is always that you say, well, you know, um, we've got to cut our budgets and, hey, um, no Canadian is receiving foreign assistance. So if I cut foreign assistance, maybe they won't get too mad at me. But that has other consequences that are in some ways even more severe. Um, it may not hurt the popularity of the government in the short term. In the long term, it will damage the state of the world and it will also damage the reputation that we have as a country that steps up. And that's a that's a credibility issues that we have to that we have to live with. Can can I ask you about your work with the Forum of Federations? Uh, I wasn't familiar with this organization. You were a founding member and remain a senior fellow of the Forum. Can you tell us about the work of this uh, organization? Well, it was started out as a, a a way of bringing together federal countries around the world to talk about how how it was sort of a governance organization, but. Soon after it was formed, we were approached by a number of countries that were going through ethnic conflict, internal conflict, constitutional change, and they were asking for advice. So we became much more of a, a mediation force. Uh, you know, you can, everybody can look it up online for you know, forumfed.org. It's a, got a terrific website. Uh, I, I was really proud to be part of it at the beginning and then to, to pass on the leadership of it to the next generation. Uh, but it does invaluable work around the world on on governance, but also on looking at um, how federal and otherwise sort of diverse and plural institutions within countries can function. And we all know that the lack of the lack of voice for people uh, in large uh, structures sometimes leads to conflict. And so federalism is frequently a way of addressing that conflict. That's how we became a federal country. So given the, the discussion around turmoil, we're seeing some fairly concerning things in the U.S. I'm, I'm not sure the, what, how much of that is steak versus sizzle, but I guess we'd like to ask you how concerned should we be about what's happening right now with, with the politics and with the what's happening in the U.S.? Well, I, I mean, my view of America, and I grew up, uh, I spent a lot of my early childhood in the United States uh, until I was 14. I, I, I think we should never, I always say to people, never bet against the United States. Uh, it's a very resilient society. Uh, and uh, it has it you know, provided a lot of leadership to the, to the world at different times historically when that was what was required. 
I, I think any thoughtful person would look at what's what's happening. I don't want to. I'm not allowed to, and not supposed to get into any partisan commentary. But I, I find some of the the things that I see disturbing. I do see some of those things happening in my own country. I find them disturbing. Um, but I I also think that we should never forget the fact that America is a resilient and vibrant democracy, and I. I think it would be a catastrophe for for everybody if that was no longer the case. It would certainly be bad for Canada, and it would be very bad for uh, for the rest of the world. So, as a politician and a public thinker, you've always had strong opinions, and nobody would deny that. But you've never been a firebrand in the sense that you know, maybe the traditional definition of that word. Where do you have any thoughts on the situation in Canada today, and whether or not we need to try and find a way to become? have a more respectful political environment? Well, you know, the, I think that Broadbent's passing is, it, rem, it reminded everybody that you could be in a, an effective, tough leader and still have deep respect from people in other parties and deep respect from people in other, from other philosophies, points of view. I mean, eventually he was, after he retired from the New Democrats, he was appointed as the first, uh, first president of the uh, International Center for uh, for democracy and human rights, and he, 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 he continued to be a, a widely respected figure. Tommy Douglas was the same. David Lewis was the same. My growing up in in, in Parliament uh, from the age of thirty, I've seen a steady deterioration in um, what I would call civic decency, just the way in which we treat one another outside the 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 frame of a political debate. Uh, and there's been a hardening of, of of that process in a way that is, I think has made life more difficult. So that's that's regrettable. I, I think it's sad. Uh, I don't think we're unique in that regard. I think if you asked a British, a retired British MP, he'd say the same thing. A retired French uh, member of uh, uh, of their uh, National Assembly, I think you'd see the same thing. I mean, it's just it's happening, but it's not good. And there's no question that social media plays. A powerful role in all this that um, one day we'll figure out what you know how that happened and what it really you know how what kind of life it will have but uh, it, it is it's regrettable but it's also concerning misinformation is concerning uh, propaganda is, is just deeply concerning the the unwillingness to accept truth as the test uh, and everybody's saying, oh, it's, it's all relative. There is no truth. And at some point you say, well, either something happened or it didn't happen. Uh, either somebody was killed or they weren't killed. Either a building was blown up or it wasn't blown up. Uh, and yeah, everybody needs to understand that the value of pursuing facts and of trying to make that the basis of our, of our decisions. And uh, I, I, re I deeply regret when that's not the case. It seems that based on your social media posts that uh, you, you you appear to be more willing to take public positions and provide your own opinions on issues that you might uh, not have done in the past, based on what some, some of the ones that I've seen. <laughs> uh, why have you decided to be a little bit more vocal um, on public issues that might concern you? I guess because I've only got one life to live. <laughs> I mean, if, if I don't do it now, I don't know when when I'll do it. Yeah, I mean, I think some people have occasionally taken exception to the fact that you know here I am as a diplomat stating these things. But I think <coughs> in in uh, dealing, for example, with what 
President Putin has done in uh, in Ukraine, the nature of his attack on people. Uh, I think uh, I think we need to be very clear about how unacceptable that is, and and why it's uh, it's so why it's so bad and why it's so wrong. And I think, frankly, Canadians appreciate um, straight talk. I think Canadians do appreciate cutting through some of the flim-flam of, of diplomatic life and, and trying to explain to people what's going on and also call people out when they say things that are, that are just completely false. I, I mean, I, I said that President Putin was lying and the Russian delegate took great exception. And I said, well, of course, I mean, wh what else do you want to call somebody who deliberately doesn't tell the truth? and invents and fabricates things and events and views and situations that are completely false we we have no choice but to but to uh, but to do that well uh personally speaking uh, i find it refreshing that somebody would actually speak the truth when it's needed we need more of that from everybody i believe and certainly calling out uh, things that are wrong so I congratulate you on on doing that, Bob, for sure. Uh, let's do a couple more questions um, uh, for you. But thinking about Canada today, I want to ask you: What are you most opt optimistic about when you think about the future of the country? Well, I think the fact that we are um, we're a youngish country. Our, you know, our population is aging, but we're also attracting a lot of people from around the world to join to join us and become citizens. Um, and we continue to be a place where there's quite a lot of mobility. There's a lot of moving up. Um, I think the extent to which we can maintain that uh, as a country and even extend it will make us much, much stronger. I, I have long believed that the key test of a country uh, is this question of mobility. How quickly can we go from a generation that is is uneducated and, and poor to a generation that is much more educated and much better off. And, and I, I think that's something that we, we must never lose sight of. Some other countries, for a variety of reasons, are very stuck and sticky. They don't have the mobility that is necessary. Um, and I hope we can keep, keep an eye on this because if we lose it, um, it'll be it'll be very uh, very negative for for everybody. I look at the current situation on housing, for example. I'm very concerned about the fact that for younger generations, it's nowhere near as easy to get into the housing market as it was for myself, and as it, I dare say, I suspect for for you two. Uh, and that's a, that's an important that's, that's an important sign of 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 how quickly and how accessible um, uh, becoming. Uh, more stable as a country and more and as individuals uh, is 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 possible. Uh, Ambassador, we we can't let you go without without getting your opinion on Atlantic Canada. We, this podcast is primarily about how we foster a thriving and successful region here in Atlantic Canada. You were the premier of the largest province. You've been involved in Confederation. You've been a politician for forty years. You know you've been a diplomat. You've, you're a thinker. Um, we, we'd like to get your thoughts on what's happening now in Atlantic Canada with the recent population surge. Um, do you, do you see this region 
or what would what would be your recommendations for how this region could thrive and prosper uh, over the next ten or fifteen or twenty years or more, um, given what's happening right now? Well, I think the the changes that are underway in Atlantic Canada are terrific. I mean, I I think that um, you know somebody once said to me, "No, Nova Scotia has too many universities," and I said, "There's no such thing as too many, too many universities." <laughs> like, how can you how can you even say that? I mean, it's just like because the commitment to education is 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 one of the things that's attracted people from outside <laughs> to uh, to Atlantic Canada, and is also um, contributed enormously to the contribution that Atlantic Canadians have made, not only to Atlantic Canada, but it was also made to the rest of the of the country. Uh, I mean, Atlantic Canadians are punching way above their their weight uh, in our national life and our national institutions, culturally, educationally, uh, economically, in terms of uh, some of the greatest business leaders. Uh, in Canada, or come from come from Atlantic Canada, and long, and long have done so. Um, so, I mean, I think Atlantic Canadians need to think back, say we're doing something right, and then figure out. But we can't be complacent about it. How do we do? How do we do even even more? Um, I also think the fact that you know historically, <coughs> that the fact that Atlantic Canada has become wealthy in good measure through trade. Instinctively makes Atlantic Canadians internationalists, uh, understanding that we, as a country, we owe our living to our ability to make our way in the world. Uh, we can't take that for granted. And I think that in you know my own province in Ontario and elsewhere, uh, it's sometimes something that people forget. They think that well. You know, the economy is what I see next door. It's the world I live in. I'm really not interested in looking far beyond that. And I think Atlantic Canadians now say, no, no, we, we know we have to, we have to uh, find our way globally. And I think that's a very, a very important and keen, uh, and keen instinct. But I guess the main thing I would say to people in Atlantic Canada, it's part of the country that I love, and I'm glad I get to spend as much time there as I have been able to do over the over the years. Uh, is that you can't take anything for granted, and uh, it, it, life requires investment. It requires taking care. It requires stewardship. It requires paying attention and asking oneself the question: How can we do it better? What do we have to change to do even better next time? And and I think that's an attitude that is absolutely critical when you when you think about what are the what are the values mindsets uh, that actually make for uh, for greater innovation greater change greater prosperity uh, and I, I think one, the main one of the main ones is just don't take anything for granted uh, because uh, you've, you've got to keep working at it if you, if you want to succeed but I, frankly I believe Atlantic Canadians know that and every sign every indication I've had is that's where they're coming from, and that's what they're looking at. We talked. You, you mentioned housing earlier as a concern of yours. Do you have other challenges facing the country uh, that you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, well, I mentioned a couple. I mean, <laughs> I would say I mean, one of the things that does trouble me. I've, I have talked a bit about it, but I think that, like every country, um, our democracy needs to be sustained by a sense of respect across the political spectrum. Uh, 
uh, I think it's really important for us to understand that uh, our success depends on, uh, and any democracy depends on the fact that as 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 parties alternate in power, which they do in many parts of, of the country, uh, as we look at different ideas and different views and angles coming from different people, it's important to understand that, you know, having a positive view of other people and a positive view of where we are uh, is critically, critically important. Uh, and, and, I, and I really do think that that matters. Um, on the, on the policy side, um, I, I think that um, the world uh, is constantly changing. The thing, one of the things that I'm most impressed by here at the UN is just the understanding, which comes to us just from looking and seeing how a country which was doing really, really well suddenly is not doing well because either the resource that they depended on has disappeared or uh, quite the opposite, something that nobody knew they had has suddenly become extremely uh, valuable. And so you you have to be constantly looking at, uh, well, where are the changes coming from? What does the future look like? How, how do we take advantage of these uh, these changes? The fact that uh, that Atlantic Canada has, has become, is beginning to think of itself as a more diverse place, as a place where we, you know, where people are embraced for coming to the province. Uh, and not just seen as, you know, come from a ways or we don't want you I think those are criti that's a critical cultural change, which is really positive. Uh, that's making a big difference, I think, in the life of the province. And I think there'll be more of that. I think it's great, and I think it's the way we, the way we 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 can we can make a difference and thrive. Um, but I would I would keep up that investment in education and innovation. I'd pay a lot of attention to um, getting a good balance of generations. Uh, I would do everything possible to cultivate uh, a civic culture of uh, of respect and those are things that i think can can help make a difference and i i see it happen and also need i say it uh, never lose your sense of humor which of course all canadians <laughs> associate with atlantic canada <laughs> absolutely a final question ambassador um What's ahead for you? Are you going to retire in the next ten years, or what? What? What are? What are you? What are you thinking about your plans? Well, I'm 75, and at one time, I suppose, like everybody, you thought, well, 65, and then at 75, and now that I'm 75, I have no intention of retiring, or no desire to retire. So, um, I I did have a very happy time teaching and doing some consulting work uh, before I became the ambassador. Um, I think that's probably where I'll where I'll go back to. Um, but one of the things that I've learned is, and one of the reasons why I've had such a, been so lucky in a rich career is that sometimes just things come along, <laughs> something happens and you say, Oh, okay, I can do that. Um, the point is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stay healthy and, uh, and well, and, and, um, as long as I've got the, the marbles to do it, I will, I will keep on trying to make a contribution, but I've, I just, I can't get over how lucky I've been and how grateful I am to the, to the friendships and the love that, uh, that has come with, uh, with my life. And I'm, uh, in that sense, I'm very, very happy. Well, this conversation has pointed to a lot of marbles, Ambassador. Thank you for joining us <laughs> on the Insights Podcast today to talk about your remarkable career. And thank you for your lifelong service to the country. Great. Nice to see you guys. Thank you so much.
Yeah, thanks, Bob. You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.